This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Raviputi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is brought to you by our sponsors. One of our sponsors is Steno. Steno is a company that specializes in providing court reporting services to trial lawyers across the country. Raul, tell us a little bit about Steno. I know you guys use them a lot. Yeah, we do and did use them a lot, almost exclusively now. And the best thing about Steno is for court reporting services, they're really a technology-based company. And now that we're moving into the world where video depositions are going to be front and center probably forever, having a technology-centered company involved in making sure that the video footage is good, the transcriptions are great, using AI and continuing to advance and adapt has been fantastic and and one of the reasons why Steno is just continuing to become one of the best court reporting services in the country. I appreciate them. You can check them out at steno.com. Our show today is also brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software for trial lawyers. It's a great product. We use it in our office. We use it to manage hundreds of cases, thousands of pages of records in every single case. You can pull everything up at the click of a button. It makes everybody's life much simpler. And the staff tells me how much they appreciate it, which makes me appreciate it. Our show today is also brought to you by our friends at Hype Legal, friends of the pod, longtime friends of us. Raul, tell us a little bit about Hype Legal. Oh, Micah and Tyler over at Hype Legal, they come with such an amazing background in now focusing on web development and marketing for law firms. They do two things. First, their graphics are amazing. And with that background comes really slick and effective web development. And second, they're really exclusive from state to state. So whatever, if you contract with them, You're not going to have the same tired, generic website as every other competitor in your venue. You're going to have some unique stuff. So you should really consider using them. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. I'm Rahul Raviputi. And I'm Ben Gideon. Ben, season two, episode two. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. We had a snowfall last night. Everything is covered with fresh white snow. It's beautiful here. How are things there in California? Man, it could not be any different. It's blue skies, about 70 degrees, and I wouldn't think it was February or early March. It's been beautiful, though. No wildfires or smog or excessive crime to report? None to report, but they're they're all there, sadly. Did you watch the State of the Union last night? I did not, but I was reading about it this morning and some of the highlights from, from all the perspectives. Did you have any takeaways from it? Just how lucky we are to live in America and not to be involved in a unprovoked war of aggression from a 
madman tyrant who's our neighbor. I mean, it just really makes you appreciate everything that much more, how fortunate we are. Yeah. So, Ben, today I have the privilege of getting to interview my co-host and friend, you, today. And I'm really looking forward to it because I've got a lot of questions, but I have a feeling this is going to go into multiple sessions over the years. So we're going to start it off a little bit easy. I mean, just kind of taking us way back, how did you become a lawyer and why did you want to become a lawyer? So the, the truth is that I didn't. I grew up in a family where my father was a law professor and I saw what that involved. He had these large case books, which you can probably remember from law school. And he constantly seemed to have one of those on his chest. He did seem to do most of his work lying in bed. And he was one of these people who liked to underline back in the days before highlighters. So he would just lay in bed for hours at a time, underlining these huge case books. And I thought to myself, I never want to do anything that requires me to do anything like that. So I really came into the law, I would say, unintentionally. But there was also part of me that in the back of my mind, I kind of always knew that that's where I would end up. Just because I think, first of all, I had a lot of respect for my dad. And We also like to talk about issues of the day, politics, law. That was a typical dinner table conversation at my house. We would get into all of kind of the cutting event issues of the day. And my father tended to approach those conversations the way I envision he approached his first year classes, where he would employ the Socratic method and ask you series of kind of leading semi-hostile questions, often designed to point out how little you knew about the subject and then to demonstrate how much he knew about it by contrast. But I I actually enjoyed that, enjoyed arguing with him. Unfortunately, nobody else in the family, particularly my mother, enjoyed it. And there were many meals where one of us would be banished from the table before the meal ended, or my mom would just throw up her hands and walk out because... For her perspective, all we did was argue all the time. And now that's amazing. So it's like Groundhog's Day. Every day you'd go back to the dinner table and have a full-blown argument with your dad where both of you are enjoying it, but everybody else is potentially mortified. A hundred percent. I have two younger brothers and both of them kind of recoiled from that too. So the, the, the dinner tables ended up being dominated by the two of us just arguing And everybody else would sit there silently trying to enjoy their meal, which my mother had worked really hard to make nice for everybody. One thing about my dad is that he was the smartest person I've ever met. Back when he was an undergrad in college, he went to Cornell University. And I don't know if you remember, there was something called the Granite State Challenge, where it was kind of like the precursor to Jeopardy, where college students would be selected. And then they would do trivia against other colleges and the finals would be broadcast on public TV. So my dad, Cornell has 13,000 undergrads. My dad was one of four who were selected to be on the college bowl team to represent Cornell. And they made it to the finals and they were on television against another college competing. 
And there's an interesting clip in the movie Diner. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that, Raul. You're a little younger than me, but it's a Kevin Bacon movie where he kind of just hangs out at a diner and like drives around. He's a super cool guy in the movie. And at one point, he's watching the College Bowl on TV in the movie. And he's basically making fun of the nerds who are competing on TV. And he's getting all the answers while stretched out on a couch drinking a beer. One of the nerds that's in the movie is my dad. So he had this sort of almost photographic memory and 100% recall of all facts and data. He published a number of crossword puzzles that he published in the New York Times he was just one of those kind of people. So I could never really compete with that. I'd never, my brain didn't work that way, but I really respected him for that. And I should say, because I think my mom may be in many ways my more formative influence because she did not have that same type of kind of nerdy brain recall, but she was the most persistent, hardworking compassionate human being I've ever met. She de dedicates most of her life to helping people in the community, people in need. She was a kindergarten and first grade teacher, but she's always reached out to help. She decided to teach English as a, spec a second language. So she got very early on. So she got into helping the immigrant community. She was a fierce champion for people that uh, needed help in the community. And she was the kind of person where if she saw a challenge or a need that needed to be met, she would just run roughshod over anybody who stood in her way. She was just so tough and just dedicated to those things. And I definitely take more after my mom, I think, than my dad. I've got enough brain cells to do this job, but nowhere close to what, what, he, what he had. Oh, that's awesome. You need both to do this job. So you're lucky. You need both. And honestly, the diligence and persistence and hard work and just grit is more important than the intellectual firepower for this job. Yep. Not for being a law professor. And that's why my dad does that job. So you said that you did not think you were going to be a lawyer, at least uh, from the get-go. Where did you think your life was headed? You know, it's a little bit ironic because what I really loved was politics. My dream was to be an elected politician. Uh, I thought maybe I remember going to Washington, D.C. as a young man and walking up the steps of the Capitol and thinking, I'm coming back here someday. I'm going to be you know, in the Congress or the U.S. Senate, which I say is ironic because my wife just ran and was the Democratic nominee in Maine for U.S. Senate. And she's had a really a phenomenal career in politics, whereas I have not gone into that career at all. But that was kind of a dream. You know, when I gave up my dream of playing left field for the Red Sox or playing uh, left wing for the Bruins or something like that, which that, that, those dreams evaporated early on in my life, I moved more towards the politics. And I should say my dad helped to fuel that because in 1976, he was the chair of the Jimmy Carter campaign for the entire state of Maine. And I remember meeting Jimmy Carter at the airport I was just a little guy, so I was born in 71, so I would have been five years old. But I remember him coming up and kissing me, which was not that pleasant at that time. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think that was a great move on his part. 
But I remembered that. It was just kind of this visceral, warm, you know, weird kiss memory of a politician. And I remember going around on these buses. We did like a bus tour of the state and I would jump out at different stops. I had brochures and I would run and do literature drops and talk to people about the Carter campaign. So I, I just remember that. I remember how my dad was really into that campaign and everybody looked to him to kind of be in charge of that for our state. And it ended up being really important because back in those days, the main caucuses were within a couple of days, I believe, before the New Hampshire primaries. And Maine and New Hampshire share a common border and they share a common media market. So part of Carter's strategy was to win or do very well in the Maine caucuses to sort of catapult him to some momentum in the New Hampshire primaries. And so my father, you know, throughout his life has always claimed credit for Carter's uh, ultimate victory. So I, I, I always had that bug as an early, in, in, in early days. When did you actually decide to hang up your political aspirations? I mean, I haven't hung them up yet, Rahul. All right. You heard it here first, everybody. My, my wife has developed great name recognition, so now I can work off of her coattails and utilize that to my own benefit. You know, I, I don't know, Rahul. I mean, we'll get into some part of this as we go forward. There are reasons why I don't think I'm maybe particularly well-suited to that field. I mean, I want to know now, though. So why, do you, why don't you think you're uh, well-suited? So this is the, the part of our conversation I've been dreading a little bit. But after I decided to attend law school and was fully ensconced there, there was a period of time where I started to develop pretty severe anxiety issues. And to the point where it became almost paralyzing for me. I remember in law school class, I was at Yale Law School, and I mean, everybody there was just so damn smart. It seemed like they were on a different stratosphere from where I was. Now, this was all just my machinations of my own mind, but I got so anxious about it. I remember classes where I would literally leave the class because I couldn't sit in the classroom anymore. I was so anxious, worried about being called on or, you know, saying the wrong thing. I would walk around in the halls thinking, what, what am I doing? Like I'm in law school. I can't even sit in a law school class. There's no way I'm ever going to actually be able to practice law if I can't even sit in the classroom. So that, that was an issue. And then I left and I, I did a clerkship for a year, which was fine because as a clerk, you just sit in an office and you read briefs and cases and draft opinions. So I was perfectly well suited to that. I'm a very good legal writer. I have good analytical skills. So truly the behind the scenes second chair stuff is something I can do very well and very easily. I mean, I could have made a whole career out of writing briefs probably. Then when I left there and went, I went to big law and worked for a big law firm, Latham and Watkins, which I'm sure you know well since it's headquartered in LA. But I was in their Manhattan, New York office. Now I did really well there on paper. I, I was one of their kind of top associates if you rank it by uh, bonuses and hours worked, which is the primary metric was how many hours of your life you sacrificed. But uh, I was young and able to do that and learning. But I had a recurrence of my anxiety issues there to the point where 
it was so bad that I had to, I, I found a place to get myself some help and started going to these group sessions for other maladjusted humans like me who seemed to have some level of social anxiety. I mean, I was finding speaking in groups at the law firm, but it, the part that put me over the edge was I was at, I was at lunch one day with a group of lawyers, partners, associates, and I literally couldn't sit there at the table. I was just so, I just couldn't do it. I had to get, I had to leave. And when I realized like, I can't even have lunch, you know, I had a real problem. So I went up, found this group. Um, I was on the Upper West Side and some like fifth floor walk up dingy apartment. But I went up there and um, started going to these groups where it was all people kind of like me. A lot of people want to be actors. It turns out if you want to be an actor, it doesn't help to have social anxiety. Lawyers, investment bankers, business people. I mean, every kind of person you can imagine in New York City. And I just started working on it. And I mean, it was really a progressive thing. It was the behavioral approach. So the, the way we did it was you just had to, you were given a task. Uh, the very first task was introduce yourself to the group. And I remember going around that first day and it was like eight people in the room and just so nervous. I didn't even feel like I could introduce myself to the group, like tell them my name and anything about me. And everybody before me was standing up and giving like these Shakespearean introductions because they had been doing this now for months and the introduction was part of the therapy. So they had been honing that over weeks and months. So I was like, oh my God, I'm, I must be in the wrong group because these people are all like amazingly gifted and natural speakers. They don't seem nervous at all. But what I realized is that's how everybody is really. People get nerves they have that inside. Other people don't necessarily know it. It's a mind issue for, for you. So, yeah, I mean, was the possibility of going into politics, this is a long answer, but my wife, by contrast to the politician, I mean, she, she did six televised debates against a sitting U.S. Senator, Susan Collins. And did she get nervous in the minutes or hour before the debate yes but she has only a brief window where that affects her and she's not greatly affected by it it just she's mostly impervious to it but you know over the years it's been a work in progress it's obviously gotten i mean i chose a career that requires me to stand up and perform in front of people i think part of the reason i did that no i was actually reflecting on that with joe biden because here's a kid who grew up with a speech impediment, right? And when you listen to his State of the Union last night, it wasn't perfect. He flubbed a couple of his lines quite badly in certain places, but yet he's the president of the United States. And the only reason he is, is because he believed he could be, and he worked to make himself that. Even today, objectively, he's not a great public speaker. He often says wrong words, wrong things. So how is it that he's the president of the United States? There's 300 million people we have to choose from. Why is it him? Well, thanks for sharing on that, Ben. I mean, candidly, it is something that a lot of people go through, uh, some people at a higher degree than others. But 
the most amazing part and what I want to explore a little bit here is from that level of anxiety becoming one of the best trial lawyers in the country. I mean, that is a serious ocean to cross. So how did you get to the heart of what it was that was creating that anxiety and then how do you manage it? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, strangely enough, I think it was the challenge and the anxiety itself that made me want to do this job because I saw it as something that was really hard and I love hard challenges. And I, I know you well enough to know that you share that. And I think that that is a quality shared by almost everybody who's good at what we do. People tell you, you can't do it. People show you all the obstacles to it and obstacles to your client getting what they want, more importantly, and we find ways to overcome. That's why we do what we do. So my own personal mini minor struggle in my own life is just a kind of uh, one minor example of that. And and one thing I've noticed when, when I love about trial lawyers in general is that everybody who's really good at this has on some level had to face down some demon, some obstacle, something that helped them build their own character to a point where, where they're comfortable with who they are, accept it, and then can be comfortable being a champion for somebody else. But I will say that I left a, a law firm a year and a half ago that was an 18-lawyer firm where I was a partner for I was there for 17 years, partner for well over a decade and a half, and a manager of the firm for a decade. Nobody there really knows about this. I I kept this mostly bottled up to myself, and any issues that I had, I would, besides myself and my wife, there really wasn't anybody else in the world I ever talked to about it, primarily because in our field, you don't want to portray any weakness, right? You always have to be impervious to to flaw, to weakness. You have to project this tough guy image. You know, interestingly, what happened for me was I got invited to join the inner circle, which is really the most like incredible thing that's ever occurred in my life, at least professionally. I mean, obviously the birth of my children and my marriage, but uh, professionally, that was just the most incredible moment for me, especially given what I felt like I had struggled through in my life and not told anybody except my my wife. And I had part of the inner circle kind of hazing ritual is that when you're a new member, you have to give your you have to give a speech, a, a new member introductory speech to the whole group. And of course, even though I had overcome a lot of my anxiety with speaking and all that over the years, that brought a lot of anxiety because I looked out across the audience and saw all of the best trial lawyers in America, or many of them, and people that I really looked up to over the years, people whose books I had read, people that are famous. You, you know all these folks, Raul. And I felt really inadequate, kind of similar to how I felt when I was at Yale Law School way back. And and I had this speech prepared where I, my plan was to start out with some kind of humor, talk a little bit about myself in just a non-revealing way, and then talk about a case, which is kind of what they, they want you to do, talk about a case. And on my way up to the podium, 
I actually thought to myself, you know what? Fuck it. I'm a member of the inner circle now. I'm going to say whatever the hell I want. And if these guys want to kick me out, that's fine. Because I've made it in my life. I'm doing fine. But I'm just going to get up there and speak from the heart and tell them and say what I want to say. And instead of doing my canned speech, what I started with was something to the effect of 19 years ago, I walked up five floors in a dingy building on the Upper West Side of New York. I was standing in front of a door and I knocked on the door and I was thinking, should I go in or should I turn around and walk away? And I was there because I needed help. And I said, well, it wasn't you know, alcohol or drug abuse. I needed help because I had anxiety, social anxiety. And I went in there and that started what became a kind of first chapter of what was a long saga for me to overcome that and to do this job. And I thought to myself, these people are going to be like, oh, I can't believe we you know, we'll let this guy into this group. It's, he obviously doesn't belong here. And then I moved on and talked about my case and blah, blah, blah. And after I was done, everybody formed a line. And one at a time, probably 50 people came up to me, shook my hand, gave me a hug. Many of them said, I went through the same thing. And I've never talked about it, but I, I want you to know I, I was there too. And it was just so incredible for me. And then since then, I've started talking about it. I've talked about it with law students because there's something nobody ever told me when I was in law school. And I've talked about it with other groups. And I see the look in people's eyes where they say, yeah, I've been through that too. And it's just, I appreciate you speaking out about it. And I think to me, it's the final chapter in my growth as a lawyer, because what makes you good at this job are a lot of things, which include things like knowing how to cross-examine a witness, do a direct, do your voir dire, put on the evidence. What makes you better is if you can be more natural, more authentic, but what makes you really great, and this is sort of the Jerry Spence thing, but you don't learn it until you learn it the hard way. What makes you really great is when you show your vulnerability and you acknowledge your own weaknesses. It's been a long journey for me to do that. I feel like I'm still struggling with it because you still want to be the tough, strong, like perfect lawyer who wins all their trials and, and all that. But I do think coming to terms with it, being able to talk about it openly and then being real, real about it. I think it's going to, I think it's already made me a better person. It's also made me a better lawyer. So uh, we don't need to spend the whole session talking about my, my struggles, but I did want everyone to understand that we're going to have some guests on this season that also maybe can talk a little bit about some of these things, because there is, in my view, a little bit too much of the chest pounding and the bragging in our, in our business. And I mean, Nick Rowley, who we had last week, was talking about how important it is to talk about, you know, the losses and to talk about the hard things that we don't, we often want to avoid. But the reality is, it's those hard things that make you better, right? It's the hardest parts of your case that if you ignore them, you lose and you have to take them head on. It's always the hardest things in life that define greatness. I remember when I was clerking for my judge. 
I would draft opinions and um, he'd read the draft and he'd say, well, you, you didn't address the hard issue. This turns on this really hard. Yeah, I didn't because it's really hard. That's why you're the you're in the robe and I'm the clerk. That's your problem. You have to address the hard issue. But what I realized is that's what it is in life, that every case comes down to one or two hard issues. And if you don't deal with the hard things, someone else is going to deal with it in a way you don't like. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Expert Institute. Raul, what's the craziest expert you've ever had to use in a case? Oh, I've had experts in the field of natural gas trading on international markets, experts relating to uh, woodpeckers, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. We looked at a woodpecker expert in a case recently. It's amazing how many things one can hold themselves out as an expert in. But if you need an expert in any of these things, you can contact our friends at the Expert Institute. Expert Institute is great at finding the perfect expert to help you support and win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. Our show today is also sponsored by Law Pods. Law Pods is a new sponsor for us this year. They're a terrific company started by a lawyer himself who wanted to help other lawyers find an easy way to produce podcasts like the podcast you're listening to right now. Law Pods is the producer of our podcasts and other great podcasts for lawyers. They make the whole process easy. So if you're a lawyer and you want to start your own podcast or just even look into it, check them out at lawpods.com. So talking about challenges that you like to take on, you've started to, or you've focused your career in large part on medical malpractice cases. Those here in California, those are some of the toughest cases. The, the law, the jury instructions, everything is set against the victim and pro-doctor. It can't be much better across the country, even if there aren't caps on damages. So how did you get into this field? And then how did you, do you have a method to having continued success? Yeah, I mean, I got into medical malpractice, maybe the way a lot of trial lawyers in smaller rural areas do, which is that in, in a state like Maine, the best, highest value, highest leverage trial cases and plaintiff's cases tend to be medical malpractice because we don't have a lot of industry, we don't see a lot of product cases. So earlier on in my career, I did more, I did do a, a number of product, like auto defect cases, um, other kinds of work, industrial products, and I still do those, but it's just because we don't see a volume of it, but we do see a volume of medical malpractice cases. And for, the areas where I am, which is mostly Northern New England, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, those tend to be the best cases you see on a regular basis, even with all of their challenges. There's this common refrain you hear a lot for lawyers that are successful with medical malpractice cases where they tell you it's not about the medicine. It's not about the medicine. And that's true. It isn't about the medicine ultimately in the courtroom because most jurors are not going to get into the weeds of the medicine at the level that you are or the Harvard-educated experts you're bringing in are. But 
it's like most things. It's only not about the medicine once you've perfected the medicine, because you have to be so conversant in it and understand it at such a innate level that you can make it not about the medicine because you just, you've got that part of it covered. When you hear CLEs or these presentations by trial lawyers on the med medical stuff and they say, oh, it can't be about the medicine, it's about other things. I do think they're doing a disservice to the, at least the newer lawyers who are trying to get into this field because it's only not about the medicine after you've perfected the medicine. So I've spent a lot of time learning medicine, perfecting, you know, when I say perfecting, it's perfecting it in the, from the standpoint of a trial lawyer. I'm not going to be going out and performing surgery anytime soon. So, and I enjoy that because I enjoy learning new things. And one of the really cool parts about doing medical malpractice cases is not only am I learning something brand new in every case, but I'm learning it from the best, most world-class practitioners in that field in the entire country. So we're using the absolute best experts in whatever that field might be. And you know, the defense will have access to the best experts too. So there's a kind of equivalence there. But how, how interesting is that to learn about blood gas analysis, for example? I mean, just by one example, but there's just so many examples of that. I'm sure you have that in many of your cases too when it comes to science and engineering, but it's just really fun to learn that. I enjoy that part of it. And then I have to pull myself out of that mode when I get ready for trial and think, how can I explain all of this in a way that the average eighth to 12th grader will get? And I really enjoy that part of it too. I think we had Lloyd Bell on and he does a lot of med mal. He's a really great lawyer. But one thing I, I really share with him is that I really believe in visuals. So I'm a big visual learner. And I, I believe that if there's any important point that you cannot present visually to a jury in a med mal case, you don't know it well enough. The interesting thing that I find is that when you're starting to convert, say, an expert's opinion about something into a visual you realize you don't understand what they're talking about. And then when you show it to them and you're working through it, you realize that you don't even agree on what they're trying to say about it. And going through that process of putting it in a picture or an animation, we tend to use a lot of animations to animate the mechanism of injury part of our malpractice cases. It really forces you to understand what you're talking about in a simple and clear way. And to make sure you're on the same page with your expert in what you believe they're talking about. So I enjoy that part of it. And, and of course, I mean, one of the big parts of the medical cases is so much of the cases, just like any kind of plaintiff's cases, is made on the front end. You really have to be careful in selecting your cases. You have to understand what makes a good malpractice case and what doesn't. Because when you... When you buy a malpractice case, you're buying, and this probably doesn't sound like much by LA standards, but I mean, we, we expect to invest $100,000 to $250,000 in out-of-pocket expenses in every malpractice case. Now, some could be less, some could, many or more, but you're buying a big undertaking and investment of time and expense, and you, you can't make too many mistakes 
and still be doing this for a living very long. So we're very selective about the cases that we take. And of course, as everybody on the line knows, in order to be selective, you have to get cases to begin with. You have to have a big, you have to cast a wide net. And to be good at this this job and to have a successful practice, there's so many elements to it. I just left a big firm that's kind of, I, I wouldn't want to put them in the same boat, but they're sort of the maybe the equivalent of Panish, Shea, Boyle, and Ravipudi in Maine. They were the kind of 10,000-pound gorilla. A very high percentage of the high-quality plaintiff's cases went to that firm that I was at before. I didn't need to do a lot because the firm has been there 100 years, and there's a just gravitational pull for those cases. And since I was one of the lead people there, when they came to the firm, they then went to me. I didn't have to do a lot to get cases. When I left the firm, you know, a big part of starting your own practice is I, I know how to do the cases. I've been doing it for a decade and a half with a lot of success, but you have to get the cases first. So that's a whole nother part of this business. But I love that part of it. And I'm, it turns out I'm pretty good at it. I didn't have to do a lot of it before, but I've enjoyed that. And we've had a lot of success getting really great cases but it's just such an interesting business we're in because there's so many elements to it. And there's some, so many of them are different and, and involve different aspects of, of your personality from nerdy lawyer work behind the scenes, writing, research, that kind of thing, to the marketing, getting cases, to working them up, to trying them. And then just now that I'm, I'm owning a business, running a, running a damn business too. Which I didn't know anything about 12 months ago. So this, I'm getting this overarching theme that you love to jump into things into the most challenging situations here. So you left your firm that you were a big part of and a big firm during the pandemic and started a business. during the pandemic. And during the U.S. Senate campaign, while my wife was a candidate and the Democratic nominee for Senate. So we had a lot going on in our household for a while. It was really surreal. I mean, putting the law firm thing aside, to be in the middle of a U.S. Senate campaign where my wife was the candidate was something I never thought I would experience in my life. And a pandemic was something I never thought I'd experience in my life. I wasn't thinking about it like most of us. but And having those two things overlap, it really was quite quite a surreal year. And then in the same time, the displacement of leaving a firm that I'd really helped to build that I loved and partners that were my friends and partners for 17 years to start my own business all at the same time was really. And then we started right. this podcast, Raul, because <laughs> I didn't have enough to do, but um, I'm really glad I did. So obviously you haven't started a business in your own law firm outside of the pandemic, so it's going to be hard to compare, but just kind of looking back at it, do you feel like that timing of starting your own business when everything was on lockdown was easier, harder, neither? So if you, if you read case studies of, of a lot of really successful businesses, you find that they were started in economic down times. That's not why I chose the time, but it's just the reality. I actually think there was a huge advantage to starting our firm during the pandemic. One is that 
now instead of incurring hundreds of hours of travel time, traveling everywhere across the country for depositions, I can do them all sitting at my desk, which when you're trying to build a firm, not having to spend that extra time to be on the road, it was really helpful. I also just think, I think a lot of law firms had a really difficult time adjusting to the pandemic. One of the, my old firm, I, I feel like the the centripetal force that kind of pulled everyone together, which was being in the office, seeing each other every day, having lunch with everybody, to a large extent, that was gone because nobody came in anymore. For For a year in my old firm, they didn't even allow people to come into the office. So everyone was working from home. Some people relocated out of state even. And I think that was happening across the board in a lot of practices. Meanwhile, in my new firm, everybody came into the office. We had a small office to start. Everybody had their own space so they could be socially distanced. Everybody was vaccinated. And we started to build this kind of team here within the office during a time that I think a lot of teams elsewhere were falling apart. And I just think that in the malpractice world, we saw an explosion of malpractice cases. I think one reason for that is that during the pandemic, a lot of family members were not allowed to go to the hospital or to understand what was happening with their loved one. And so somebody would end up going in for a procedure or some condition that didn't seem all that serious. And two weeks later, they'd be dead. And people were calling us saying, we don't understand what happened. We weren't there. No one let us in. No one told us what happened. I'm not talking about people that get COVID and die from COVID. We haven't done a single COVID-related case. I don't know if we ever will, but we're talking about you know, other things, elective surgeries, different aspects of care. But it just seemed like there was a huge uptick of anxiety about medical care and uh, requests for evaluations of cases. It was a good time for that. But yeah, it, it hasn't, it, the pandemic was not an impediment. If anything, it was an advantage. It's been a huge advantage cost-wise. Just the travel and deposition time is, is enormous. And because almost all of our experts, because we do med, med, medical cases, they're all out of state. So in the old days, I would be in Boston, Chicago, New York, Baltimore every week often flying there for one two-hour deposition, flying home, but that kills a whole day of productivity, right? And then it's like winter in Maine, you, your flight's canceled. I mean, there's just it's just such an inconvenience. The defense loves it because it helps them get on their hamster wheel of billables and they're billing for all their martinis in the airport, all, all of those soft billables. And there's these road warriors that I deal with, some of them, and no, I enjoy that. I like the camaraderie. I like talking to people in the airport or having a drink, but but I don't need that. It doesn't enhance our case at all. And it's just a it's a cost. For them, it's a billable. So it's really been good for I think for plaintiffs overall and for a for a brand new firm in particular. What's the trial schedule look like for you in the in the near and long future? So one of my greatest frustrations about the pandemic, despite the positives I mentioned, is that our state has been just woefully unprepared for the pandemic. And 
not responsive to efforts to try to adapt. And it's just enormously frustrating. Maine has been like that. In Maine, we have, until a couple of weeks ago, as far as I know, there had not been a single civil jury trial conducted since the onset of the pandemic. And the only cases that they are scheduling now are those that they can run back up to a criminal docket. And those tend to be a one or two day tort cases. But for the cases we need, where we need a two or three week specially assigned trial, they have not assigned a single day for a single trial since the beginning of the pandemic. Early on, I made an effort to change that by creating a committee here and actually bringing in judges. We had two judges come in from, well, one judge and one administrator from Washington State. This was a year or more ago where they gave us lots of details about how they had set up their remote jury selection process, their remote trial process. We even got to the point where we did some mock trials that way with some of the sitting justices here. But honestly, there's just no driving force on our judiciary that's willing to, to make it happen. And there's, we're a poor state. There's very limited funding. They have an enormous backlog of criminal cases. They can't even get enough marshals to staff the courthouses here in Maine anymore. So it's a real problem. We're still working on trying to fix it. I do hope, I, I mean, I have trial that I'm really pushing hard to get scheduled for this spring. I, I'm confident that it, that will happen. And then that will start a process of having more scheduled. But it is just incredibly frustrating, especially when I see so many states, California, but all over the country where they've managed to restart trials, adapt to different approaches, whether it's Zoom trials or hybrid approaches or whatever, and we haven't. And it's hard to be a trial lawyer when, when there's no functioning civil justice system. <laughs> Now, so yeah, it's really, really maddening. I hope I'll have some better news to report in the next uh, month or so. Okay, so I'm going to jump around a little bit. And as expected, I've got so many more questions and I feel like we're just getting underneath the surface. And I honestly, I appreciate you sharing everything with uh, with us, Ben. Learning more about you is is an inspiration for everybody. And I think why you talk to law students about the the struggles that you had early on is to let them know that they can do it and they can become an amazing lawyer if this is what they want to want to do with their lives which is which is really cool of you to do. Yeah, one of the central questions of my professional life has been is the ability to be really gr a great trial lawyer is that is that innate? Is that something you're born with or is that a learned experience. Of course, like most things, the answer isn't clearly one or the other. I do think there are some truly gifted lawyers that just have this innate ability to do it, but I don't think innate ability in anybody is even close to enough. In fact, it can be dangerous, but I think I am a good example that you can learn, you can get better, you can and just because you may have some challenges that you start with, anybody really can be, be great at this. And I think that should give inspiration to a lot of law students or people that may have been sitting there with similar anxieties to what I felt when I was in law school. 
And, you know, part of it, I, Rick Friedman was talking on his, the very first episode, which he just an amazing lawyer and great person about a couple of things that really resonate with me. One is that you got to stop comparing yourself to everybody else. That's a losing game in this business because, first of all, a lot of people's credentials as they present them are marketing. And there's you got to take it all with a little bit of grain of salt. Uh, we all know that. People promote themselves in ways that aren't entirely correct if you were to have been there, right? So that's fine. But you can't make yourself constantly feel inadequate or insecure about that. I mean, I look at your verdicts and it makes me feel insecure. But I realize, look, you're a great lawyer. There's no question about it. Probably a much better lawyer than I am. But you're in California. And that's a totally different world from where, I'm, where I am. So I'm fine for where I am. And so that's one point is you got to stop comparing yourself to everybody else all the time. And look, at the end of the day... I've made a lot of money. I've been able to feed my family. I've been able to pay the mortgage. I can take care of my kids, right? I can enjoy my life. And so I've had a successful career doing something I never thought I'd be able to do. So that's probably good enough. Now, could I be more successful? Yes, but it's, it's okay, you know? I'm fine with that. So that's one point. The second point that Rick made, which has really resonated with me, is it's not fucking about you. And it's definitely not about me. So all of this bullshit that's going on in your mind, that's that's inside yourself, but that's not what this is about, right? It just isn't about us. We're there to represent people and principles that matter. And once you take yourself out of it and realize you're not, this isn't a movie where you're you're the star. That's not your job as a lawyer. And that's why Joe Biden can be president of the United States, because ultimately he can flub up a word or two, right? He can stutter occasionally. It's not about him. <laughs> it's about the office. It's about what he does for people. It's about his values and how that might change the world for better. Uh, ultimately, it is not about, it's not about him. And it takes a lot, when you realize it's not about you, it takes a lot of pressure off you. And I think that's something young lawyers, people want to do this. Try to learn that earlier in your career. It's not, take the pressure off you. It's not about you anyway. So don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm really struggling with that still. I know, you it's know, hard. It's, it's, really it's, hard. Not the, it's not that I feel like it's about me. It's just the the segregation of like, do you detach yourself from the passion and wanting to do the best for your client? if you separate yourself out too much? Like, isn't there a line that you could cross in a bad direction? I mean, I, I completely agree with that. And as much as I give lift service to, it's not about me, in the back of my mind and everything I do, my brain is telling me this is about you again. It's about you again. One thing I think all trial lawyers have in common, I know you do, is we're super competitive. We wanna win sometimes almost at all costs and, and too much because we can sacrifice our lives, our health, a lot of things to that on the altar of winning. And I've tried to get better at that over the years. I'm, not, I'm still not very good at that. I mean, if I had a trial a month from now, you wouldn't see me. I'd disappear for a month. I'd show up with a beard and disheveled and unshowered. 
people used to make fun of me at my old firm in this sort of pre-trial mode I would go into. But so the competitiveness is fine. I think the competitiveness is a good quality because it motivates you to work really hard and to want to win. But just being competitive doesn't necessarily mean it has to be about you. Right. my, My only point is just be super competitive. Do everything you can to win. Give yourself every opportunity to win. But part of winning is realizing that the power is the story. The power is not the storyteller. You know, so many different lawyers, when I look at people that are so successful at this, one of the most amazing takeaways is that they're all different. There is no one model for somebody who's great at this. We've had so many on the show and some people are really over the top and aggressive, um, real type A personalities. Other people are really soft-spoken and laid back, almost to a fault. And people come in all different stripes, but yet all of those people can have enormous success. And why is that? It's, it's because success doesn't turn on having a particular type of personality or type of presentation. The most important thing is to be authentic to who you are, to project that to the jury and to tell the story of your case and let the chips fall where they may, right? Honestly, if you have a bad case, you're probably going to lose because, I mean, we heard from John Campo, and but every lawyer will tell you this, the most important factor in every case is the facts of the case. Yep. You know, we're, we, can, we can do better or worse on the same set of facts. And I think there is a wide range of abilities and skills and outcomes, depending on who the lawyer is. I do think the lawyer makes a huge difference, but the lawyer is not the most important factor in that, despite what we'd like to believe. <laughs> well, Ben, thanks for your time this morning. This is going to be the end of chapter one of probably 500 in interviewing you because there's so much more I want to learn, but I appreciate it. And this was awesome. Yeah. I feel like it was almost more of a therapy session. So I apologize to the listeners for that, but I, it was, you know, in some ways I've been, I've been dreading this a little bit and putting it off, but um, it feels good to, to do it. And I really appreciate doing this with Raul, with you, Raul. It's been, it's really been a great experience for me. And, um, I just hope it can continue. So thank you. Thank you. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.